Hello and welcome to Man on the Clapham Omnibus Sport Review. Following on from my last podcast talking about football's Mount Rushmore, I really wanted to elaborate on a couple of points. I realised that after I had done the podcast, I hadn't mentioned Zinedine Zidane. Now that's not because I don't rate him or don't believe that his career had you know, some legacy. What it is, is that when you use the Mount Rushmore principle, what you're doing is you're telling a story. So my story starts at the first modern World Cup, or semi-modern World Cup, so that's 1958 up until the present day. So really, what you're doing is you're having people that define the era, those eras. So that's Pele. So his Brazil team are fantastic. They win the most. They play the best sort of football. And their apex is the 1970 World Cup, where they play fantastic football and they really batter the competition and win it at somewhat of a counter, but playing football that is just... I mean, many people consider that the greatest football team of all time. But what what it shows is that after 1970, things are changing, which is why Pele's ending his career in New York is so important, because really it's showing you where football is going, is that Pele is, is lured to the New York cosmos to help expand and grow the game in America. So it's not just a, a sort of an immigrant sport or a or an underground sport, because he is the first global superstar in sports, the one that is known the world around, who basically can go and tour to any part of the world with Santos, and crowds will flock just to see him play. Which then really neatly leads on to Maradona's career, whereby Pele could be the world's first global superstar, having never left you know, continental South America or North America. The reason why Argentina... And Maradona is so successful is precisely because he does move. And it's not just to Barcelona. He then moves to Italy, which is the you know centre of football in the 80s and 90s. Because that's where the great teams are, it's where the great leagues are in terms of getting foreign players in, investment in transfer fees. And as a result, there are two great teams in, in international level in the 1980s. It's West Germany and it's Argentina. But the reason why it's not West German on you know on the Mount Rushmore, it's an Argentine, is because of Maradona. He defines that era. In other words, it's not a fantastic era in terms of football. You know, it's physical. It's quite defensive. But as a result, you have these bright shining lights in Platini, Liam Brady, Maradona, who light up the game. Because they can overcome all of the physicality with their genius and the way how football basically allows these playmakers to exist. Because really what you need to unlock teams is someone fantastic. Someone who doesn't have defensive responsibilities. But that era, it isn't forever. It really basically climaxes in Italian 90. It's hosted by Italy, the centre point of world football at that point. But it's a very dull tournament. It's very physical, very defensive. You know, lots of yellow cards, the fewest amount of goals in a World Cup. And it can't carry on forever because Maradona, as a player, is slowly but surely starting to decline. And so really what happens is FIFA essentially realise the game has to evolve away from these handful of magical geniuses and it has to become a more open game a more a game that can really be again exported out to the world because the next world cups in usa in 1994 they can't afford another tournament like that that's not going to grow the game so they outlaw the back pass they outlaw 
the tackle from behind, which opens up the game, which then allows the, you know, Brazil to re-emerge onto the global scene in winning it in 94 and 1918, which is even better, even though it doesn't win. And Ronaldo is the classic example of that because he's the next step on from Maradona, whereby Maradona can, is you know, basically massively well-known before he makes his transfer to Barcelona. They know he's the next great football genius. The difference is, is that, to at least to a European audience, is Ronaldo isn't is fantastic, brilliantly talented player, but football has moved on to such a point that he can't just move from Brazil to one of the sh- big teams. So he can't move to Spain, he can't move to Italy. He has to, to go to PSV Eindhoven in Holland. Same principle that happened with Romario but that's the way how football is developing he that's the future in other words you and you know the 1995 Ajax team is an example of that in terms of the next great migration which was African players make going into Europe is that they go to these you know the Dutch league the Belgium league to an extent even the French league they then can you know because it's so difficult to get established in European football and really what Ronaldo defines that mini sort of generation prior to Messi and Ronaldo is that when he joins Barcelona they re-establish themselves as potentially superpowers so if you're talking about the European Cup in 1992 the first time they'd ever won it but even up and even that success under Johan Cruyff is ephemeral it doesn't last particularly long by the time they get to the 1994 European Cup final they play up against AC Milan and they lose 4-0 the next European Cup, Ajax, a young team full of you know developed talent, they win it. They're, they're still behind. They, are, Spain is not the centre point of European football. But signing Ronaldo is the first sign of that growing dominance. And as a player, Ronaldo's original Ronaldo sums up that generation. Because there's great strikers all across Europe. You know, in England, you've got Shearer, Ferdinand, yeah, Fowler, all of them scoring goals. Because football at that point is still fairly traditional tactically. You're still reliant on wingers, 4-4-2 yeah, in terms of Arrigo Saki. And so as a result, that's, you know, Zidane doesn't fit into that. You know, he starts his career at Bordeaux and he's fantastic. But he's, he's still almost a sort of a lingering aftermath of sort of the... 80s where you know and the Maradona thing he's just a fantastic playmaker but he doesn't change even when he's at Juventus he's just a fantastic player it takes a while for him to really establish himself but at no point does you know do teams change the formation you know he doesn't score goals in a way that transcends the generation he's just a fantastic player what Zinedine Zidane's great skill is is that he's a timeless player he's much like Alfredo Di Stefano the reason Alfredo Di Stefano isn't on Mount Rushmore in comparison to Pele because he has this fantastic level of success for Real Madrid at domestic level, but due to factors out of his control, he, he's never able to do it at international level. And as a result, and really, Pele is a better player because, you know, in terms of the grace and how young he was, whereby Alfredo Di Stefano is, by the time you get to the 1960s, he's passed his best. And really, he's timeless. In other words, you can put Alfredo Di Stefano in any era and he would be successful because of his skills. So as a result, trying to shoehorn him into a era doesn't really do him any justice. The same thing you could possibly say about Frank Puskas. But, and even Zidane. In other words, because their numbers, if you just look at it on, you know, 
on a spreadsheet don't look, he, you know, he wasn't scoring wholesale goals like, you know, Ronaldo was or Shearer was, or even to, an, even to an extent a Letizier. But it's, you know it when you see it. So with Zinedine Zidane, it's his genius. In other words, he doesn't change football and he doesn't define football of any era because really he doesn't define the 90s. He does because you know really it's the Brazil team win it in ninety four. They get to the final in ninety eight, and really part of the the whole nineteen ninety eight World Cup final really comes down to the fact that Ronaldo has a a fit, and as all you know, obviously there's a million different conspiracy theories, but there's the argument that they just send him out there because of the sponsors or because they just simply cannot countenance the idea of not starting Ronaldo in the final which then leads to Zinedine Zidane's France winning it. But if you look at it in the next World Cup 2002, Brazil win it. France have an element of success, but they're, they're just a great team. You know, it's not, it's not... Zidane's France team isn't Maradona's team of the late 80s. So in other words, the 86 World Cup, the 90 World Cup, where it was basically Maradona dragging you know, a, a somewhat limited team to the apex of the World Cup final almost single-handedly. With France, you've got Thierry Henry, you've got Lisa Rizzi, you've got Marcel Desailly, Didier Deschamps, Fabien Barthez. There's a fa- it's a fantastic generation of players, and he is the you know centre point of that. So what this is really leading into is today's topic, which is Wayne Rooney. I think the difficulty of trying to define his legacy because really all of the players I've been talking about they all have a a legacy and they have a narrative and I think with Rooney the problem is is that his legacy is problematic and his narrative isn't particularly strong so really if you just take it at you know absolute face value he's an Everton fan as a kid goes up through the ranks at Everton makes a you know bursts onto the scene as a sort of 16 17 year old yeah, hones his game a little bit and then moves to Man United, has a load of success in Man United, career starts to tail off, then makes an emotional return to Everton. All in the while he's broken the Manchester United goal scoring record and he's broken the England goal scoring record. That appears fantastic. It, it you know, it kind of and the idea is is that let's say at Everton he plays sort of a role playing you know, he's a role player, you know team leader, and hopefully leads them, let's say, to an FA Cup or a League Cup. And at that point, you've then put the bow and his career is wrapped up nicely. However, the problem is is that if that was just the case, then he'd be gloriously celebrated. And he wasn't. When he broke both of those records, there was an element of ambivalence. There was an element of melancholy to it. In other words, when he leaves Man United, it's with a whimper. The fans don't seem to miss him in the same way that when Eric Cantona retired. There was just this huge outpouring of you know, sort of grief, of shock, and at the same time of appreciation. And I think what it comes down to is, is that if you compare... So he broke Bobby Charlton's record. So in both cases, so the Manchester United one and the international one. So Bobby Charlton, basically, his legacy is, is that he re-establishes Manchester United as a global super club. And at England level, he takes England to glory. In other words, the end of his international career is a heartbreaking what-if. 
what if Alf Ramsey keeps him onto the field when they're 2-0 up against West Germany in the quarterfinal? Do England then see out the game, go to the semis, and potentially win the tournament? Whereby with Wayne Rooney, he's and domestically matched you know, Bobby Charlton in terms of winning European Cups, winning leagues, winning FA Cups, League Cups, the, the whole lot, even the Europa League. But the point is, is that Bobby Charlton's legacy is he cre- helped create that. And you have to always factor in the, you know, obviously, the tragedy of the, you know, the air crash, Munich. You, and you also have to realise that when Bobby Charlton declines, Manchester United decline. And then after that, you have this whole fallow period before they then get re-established under Ferguson and Cantona in the 90s. Whereby, with Wayne Rooney, when he turns up to Manchester United, they've already been a hugely successful club. And when Wayne Rooney leaves, they'll still remain a hugely successful club. He is important in Manchester United history, but he's. the argument is, is that would you put him on Manchester United's Mount Rushmore? And I'd say no. I, I honestly wouldn't put him on there. You'd have to put on Bobby Charlton because of the longevity, the amount that he achieved, what he means, and how he re-establishes Manchester United and which is why they had so much support even during the bad times of the 70s and the 80s, and then you know plays a role in the background in terms of the Ferguson years. You'd have to put George Best, because George Best, do, the, do they win the 68 European Cup without him? He's an absolutely... He transcends that era. He is part... You know, he's what makes people support Manchester United. He's a glorious footballer. He doesn't he doesn't have the same longevity as Bobby Charlton, but you know, he is a definitive Manchester United player. Which then really leads you on to, you know, who re establishes him. And you have to put Cantona because that's why Man United fans still hero worship Cantona, despite the fact he hasn't played for them for twenty years. Because he's the one if if they'd never signed him from Leeds, Manchester United at some point in the nineties would have won at least one or two Premier League titles. But with Eric Cantona, what happens is they win multiple, and that eventually when he he serves his purpose, in other words, he sets the standards and his levels of genius. It's a bit like similar to sort of Zinedine Zidane in a way. If you look at his numbers just on a page for Manchester United, they don't look overtly fantastic. But why he gets onto Manchester United's Mount Rushmore is that he sums up, he brings the, the arrogance, the genius, the desire to win, and the impact that he had on all of the younger players coming through. So you talk about Skulls, Beckham, but I, I suppose you can even say to an extent Ryan Giggs, the, you know, the Neville brothers, and how that then, you know, again, not only re-establishes Manchester United, but builds them to this global super club that they are now. And so, if you then wanted to then put the fourth person on there, well, you'd probably have to put Giggs. If you think of it, Giggs is there from, you know, 91 when they win the European Cup, Winners' Cup, all the way to the end. He's there all throughout. You know, he changes roles. Sometimes he's a role player, sometimes he's a centre mid. He's originally a fantastic left winger. You know, his commitment to winning is so strong, whereby anybody else might well have just decided, look, I've won everything that there is to win. He carries on. And he's an integral part of it. And if you were to then say, and this is what I always say when you talk about Mount Rushmore, you can either have halfway down the mountain, you can almost have like a hall of very good. People that are, you know, should be duly noted as important, but they're not quite as important, you know, to be on Mount Rushmore. 
And so you, you maybe put him in there, but then you're talking about, you know, Dennis Law, Paul Scholes, David Beckham, you know, Peter Schmeichel. There, there's all those sort of players. And it does appear harsh to sit there and say this of Rooney, that he doesn't, that he, even on the second level, that he's not the first person. In other words, he's not the fifth person. In other words, if someone would be to take, if you were to take off, let's say, Ryan Giggs, that you'd immediately put Wayne Rooney instead. I, I don't even think you'd go that far. And I think the problem is, and this is one of the, the issues that you get when, you, when you're dealing with Wayne Rooney, is that at no point does he ever make Manchester United his club, in the same sense that Cantona does, in the same sense that maybe even sort of Best or Charlton. Because he, his talent is so amazing. But at no point does, it, does he ever seemingly have a, a full position. In other words, you know what some people would say one of his greatest seasons at United was when they had Tevez, Cristiano Ronaldo, and Rooney spent a lot of that year on the left. And I think the classic example is when Cristiano Ronaldo goes to Real Madrid. If if there was going to be any time that Wayne Rooney was going to then assume the mantle, and basically to be the the centre point of Manchester United, where everything would run through him, where it would become his team. It never really happens. There's always, I think, all every single manager that's ever dealt with Wayne Rooney has always struggled in exactly how to use him best, because at dom- it's easier at domestic level. At domestic level, the talent will just basically rise, and he will keep scoring goals even if you put him on the left, on the right, up front, on his own, with a with a lead striker, with a target man. Eventually, it he's just got so much talent it will come through and he will score fifteen, twenty, twenty five goals. And this is what's happened at international level, is that basically England managers have just you know, bent over backwards. You know, they've had Owen, Heskey, Sterling, you know, they've had him as a 10, left mid, centre mid, a front three, a front two, up front on his own, supporting a lead striker. And none of those performances, none of those, it's never worked for any period of time. And he's had all different types of managers. You've had a, a Steve McLaren, Tom, who wants really great football. You've had a disciplinarian in Fabio Capello. You've had an experienced older manager in Roy Hodgson, who's got plenty of experience in Europe. All these different types of managers. And although the numbers, you know, superficially look fantastic, at big international tournaments, and, and t- that's taking away 2004, which I will get to a little bit later on, I think you could probably make an argument that there's that he almost seems to inhibit players and managers at definitely international level and even to an extent at domestic level. In the end, all you can really do with Wayne Rooney is put him out there and reap the benefits of his ability. What you what he never seems to do is to then. And this is where, if you compare him to the greats, and I'm even going to sort of mention the European Mount Rushmore. So if you look at it, you look at, let's say, take Beckenbauer, classic example, 1974 World Cup, the German team manager, essentially halfway through the tournament, has what we would now call a breakdown, an emotional breakdown. He's not really in a, he's there, but he's nowhere, he's not capable of managing the team. So really, it comes down to Beckenbauer. He really assumes the mantle, which he already had, because he was the leader, he was the leader at Bayern Munich, and everything ran through him. And that's his sort of apex tournament. They go on to win the World Cup by and then win the next few European Cups. And you then add in someone like Cruyff. In other words, the real question is, is that could you have had total football without Johan Cruyff? 
Yes, you could, but it wouldn't be nowhere near as good or as interesting or as, you know, ideological. He's the one that, you know, along with Renus Michael, helped develop it. In other words, it's not top-down. It's not just Renus Michael saying, OK, this is how we're going to play, and the player's working towards that. In other words, it's Johan Cruyff you know, working towards his ability and his talent and the players surrounding him, and Renus Michael adding you know, an element of structure to it, no matter how fluid that structure is in total football. And if you then look at Messi and Ronaldo, his peers... You know, the, the classic example is with Lionel Messi is that he's had to chain, he's had different managers and, and a different co-cast. In other words, sometimes you end up with Zlatan, other times it will be Neymar and Suarez. And he's always trying to, he's always working how he can get the best out of himself and the players around him. And you know some they've had, they've lost players like Xavi they've lost players like you know Thierry in other words it's an ever changing cast but he always seems to be able to you know and the way how teams deal with him whether they put two markers on him or whether they you know pack the defense or whether like you know, like a Raul Valencano they just attack at will and you know how Barcelona then cope with that and what Messi's genius is is he's able to make changes like I mentioned in the last podcast. And he's basically created a whole new concept of what an attacking player can do. An attacking player can effectively play on the left or in the hole or off of two or three strikers and score 50 goals. A goal a game. Sometimes even more than that. While also setting up 10 to 15 assists and while allowing the players around him to have success. Whereby like Ronaldo and 90 strikers, you know, like Alan Shearer, Christian Vieri, they weren't able to do that. What they were said is, if you give me the service, I will get you 20 goals, I will hold up the ball. However, you know, the classic example is how many goals Chris Sutton scores. He just chips in with 10 to 15 because his role you know, is to help Shearer get the goals. Same way as Beardsley does at Newcastle in helping Andy Cole get, you know, industrial amounts of goals. But we're talking about, you know, 20s and 30s. What? Messi and Ronaldo have done is completely change that. In other words, what you can possibly do, and it's more Messi than Ronaldo, but then what Ronaldo has done is is that whereby I've said that Wayne Rooney doesn't take over Manchester United and doesn't basically build the team around himself from a tactical standpoint and even to an extent an emotional standpoint after Ronaldo at least when there is, you know, because if you look at it, Manchester United don't sign a sh- you know four or five fantastic players to replace Ronaldo. That the there is a there is a power vacuum, but he doesn't. You know Rooney doesn't jump on top of that. And if you were to compare it, essentially, you know Ronaldo in ta- in being the world's most expensive player at the time and going to Real Madrid with all the the pressure and you know essentially all of the dysfunction that is inherent in Real Madrid. But what he does is he becomes the absolute undisputed leader. Everything goes through him. Everything you have to work. In other words, you know, Karim Benzema's greatest success ever at Real Madrid was learning to work with Cristiano Ronaldo. So in other words, all of his runs and all of and his goals, even to an extent, are help Ronaldo to be the player that he can be. And so is a and what whereby Messi's ability is in terms of building teams and a structure. What Ronaldo's ability at Real Madrid is, is to basically keep pushing the bar higher and higher and higher and being so demanding that you have to be on my level, you know, as a team, 
in order to be successful. In other words, you need to be... If you're not working towards me getting 50, 60 goals and us winning the Champions League, you, have not, you, you are not good enough to play for Cristiano Ronaldo's Real Madrid. Which basically... In other words, he becomes, in other words, that the, the players change every single year because they keep buying Galacticos, they keep changing managers. But the one constant is Ronaldo will get goals and will take you and can take you to the league. He can take you to Champions League. He can get you La Decima. If only you were to get at that level, which is basically pushed on what global football can do. In other words, that now all the other teams around, so in other words, PSG, Bayern Munich, the Premier League, now have to, you know, buy players, develop players better. And it has become that much more frenetic. Which then really brings you back to brings you back to Rooney. In other words, there's some sort of key questions that we really need to answer to really get to the sort of heart of his legacy. I mean, are were the expectations that we put on him in terms of when he was sixteen, seventeen, when he first made his breakthrough at Everton? And then at England level, were they unfair? So, if you say yes, they were unfair, does that mean he underachieved? In other words, you know, were, was that, were they so high that no one could have ever possibly, you know, fulfilled those expectations? And I don't think that's the case, because he's broken the Manchester United Bobby Charlton record, which I... I think most people would assume would have lasted for you know a lot longer, or would have needed someone that you know was a wholesale goal scorer like a like a traditional striker like a Harry Kane, someone who goes up through the Manchester United youth system and spends twenty years there, patiently getting twenty goals of a season until eventually he goes past the record, you know, or and especially at international level again a you know, a traditional. Striker, so someone that you know makes his debut, like you know, in a in a way that a lot of people expected Michael Owen to have to be the one that broke the record, and that the only reason he didn't break the record was that his career essentially petered out in his late twenties, early thirties. And if you say that the expectations weren't unfair, and that you know he actually you know he did break these records, and that you know the potential was there is that then you, you start to question his legacy. So in other words, well, why didn't he win a Ballon d'Or? Why, why didn't you know, England get to at least the semis, if not the finals of these major tournaments? And I think it really comes down to what the paper statistics and what it was like to actually be there and watch them. In other words, he scored all of these goals for England, but were the performances where where the, where were the great I think where were the great moments, and as a result I think the classic. Let me give you a case study. So I'm going to compare him to Gascoigne. In other words, let's say we're going to create a Mount Rushmore for the England national team. Okay, who would you put on there? So you naturally have to start with Bobby Moore, brilliant defender, you know, captain the team to winning the World Cup in 1966, the iconic performances against Brazil in Mexico '70. Absolutely, the first person you put on there. Second person, Bobby Charlton. Again, similar situation. Helped England win the World Cup. Great performances in you know, Mexico 70. Which then kind of leaves a couple of, of spare places. I'd put Lineker on there in terms of the, 
you know, Italian 90, getting us to the semi-finals, winning the Golden Boot in Mexico 86. You know, his overall England career is fantastic, scored goals against the top teams, had a fantastic domestic career. He was someone that you could rely on in big games, you know, against the, the great teams, so the German, West German team, the Argentine team, of getting goals. Again, leaves that last spot. So really, it, that one is not quite so easy. I'd personally put Gordon Banks there in terms of being one of the world's best goalkeepers of his generation and his overall performances. You could put Paul Gascoigne there. I personally would prefer Gordon Banks, I think. But what I'm saying is is that you could make arguments for Wayne Rooney and you could make arguments for Paul Gascoigne. So I'm going to compare Rooney to Gascoigne. So really, if you look at in terms of paper statistics, Paul Gascoigne plays 56 caps for England, 8 goals. Wayne Rooney has played over 100 and got 50-plus goals. You'd argue, on that basis alone, you'd have to put Wayne Rooney above Paul Gascoigne. But I think when you get in terms of the legacy and the narrative side of it, is that Paul Gascoigne goes to two major tournaments. So that's Italian 90 and Euro 96. In both cases, they get to the semi-finals, and in both cases, they lose on a heartbreaking penalty shootout to... West Germany and unified Germany in Euro 96. And Gascoigne's struggles with his weight. Wayne Rooney has struggled with his weight. I'll talk about Wayne Rooney's fitness a little bit more in a bit further detail a bit later on in the podcast. But, he, you know, Gascoigne has to deal with becoming a, a national icon after Italia 90 and the inherent pressures. Wayne Rooney had to deal with that. Obviously, Wayne Rooney did it at a much younger age than Paul Gascoigne. But the, I think the point is, is that with Paul Gascoigne is, is that he, the emotional issues that he went through his whole career. And I think one of the points you have to remember is that it's the 90s. They know something's wrong with Paul Gascoigne. They know that you know all of his issues and the drinking and the weight and all the rest of it, they're all interlinked. But they just don't have the understanding, they don't have the resources. In many ways I think one of the things that I found interesting is, is when they move when he moves from Spurs to Lazio. Now Spurs need the money. That's pretty much why they've sold him. And I think probably on a subconscious level, I think they realise that Paul Gascoigne is probably quite difficult to handle and that they've probably got the best out of him that they're going to get and that the money would be great because they're in financial troubles. It's kind of, you know, it's the perfect storm, really. But it's interesting that no other British team buys him. You know, it's three, four million pounds, which is not, which is at that time probably quite an astronomical fee, but it's not outside of the reams of possibility that a United or uh, any number of clubs or Liverpool, they could have afforded it if they wanted to. And I think part of it is more on a... Really, they, they, English football realises that it can't deal with Paul Gascoigne. And so really, they look around to, to how to fix him. And I suppose Italy seems to be the most natural place. In other words, you know, the discipline side of Italy, in the, the tactical side of it, in terms of the excellence of it. Really, what they're saying is, here's Paul Gascoigne, see what you can do with him, see if you can fix him. And I know that sounds quite harsh, but really, that's in in their limited means. That's the best way they can. Well, you know, the discipline of being in you know 
because it, with it, it with Italian football, what you get is often the if you have a bad loss, you might go away for a hotel for a week where you're locked away from your family, and it's you know refocusing the team for the next week so they have to win. It's that kind of control that English football at that time didn't really offer. English football at that time was you know, not quite in the dark ages, but you would still have the tradition of okay, we finish training, go to the pub, you know, go to the bookies, go to the track, any number. And it wasn't didn't have that level of discipline that Italy, on a notional level, afforded. So, I, so, and there is actually, in terms of Pogacar's narrative, there is something about that. In other words, he has the horrible injury that he gets in the ninety one Cup final and the recovery, and he then goes to Italy. He had some success in Italy, but it wasn't and. It wasn't dominant success because Lazio weren't the greatest team at that period of time, and also he has injury problems, you know, difficulties in you know settling in in Italy. But the point is, is that in terms of the narrative, in other words, he's this hero in, in ninety comes almost out of nowhere because the team really came out of nowhere. They weren't expected to do brilliantly well, and then you have the sort of the nightmare of you know, World Cup ninety four qualification in which he's not able to make that many appearances. And that kind of leads them to missing out on the tournament. So Euro ninety six, you know, he's probably a little bit past his peak. But he's what he does is he, and this is where the thing that gets interesting. So he he needs to leave Lazio. You know, he's achieved everything he's going to achieve out there, and it's time to move on. And it's interesting that no English club puts in a huge bid for him. So not the emotional return to Tottenham, not the emotional return to Newcastle, because Newcastle had the money, and that would have been, you know, a, a clear, you know, because at the time Newcastle were kicking on trying to win a league title. But it's interesting that he ends up going to Rangers. And again, I think it's almost a way of, ah, well, up in Scotland, you know, it's, you know, it's away from the bright lights of London or the bright lights of Newcastle. Here he can have, you know, he's got the strong disciplinarian in Walter Smith, and he can do fishing, and it's a quieter life, and maybe that will help him settle down. And what happens is he gets himself fit, gets himself healthy, refocuses, and he's got that understanding of tactics that he's managed to, you know, learn from being out in Italy. And there's an element of improvement. And so it's very emotional when he comes back in Euro 96 and has this fantastic success. Eventually, obviously, the, the emotional issues and everything else leads to his you know career ending early in terms of his catastrophe. In other words, he doesn't get selected for the World Cup 98 squad. But if you compare all the issues that he had as, as a person in terms of his peers and his achievements at the top level, so let's say you're, you're looking at maybe Thomas Hassler, Alessandro Del Piero, Totti, Burkamp, those sorts of players... It's amazing that he had that level of success, considering everything that was going on in in the background. But so if you then compare him to to Wayne Rooney, what you're looking at is is that Gaza had better coaches. In other words, when Gaza is right, he has a fantastic coach at some point. So in other words, at Spurs, he has Venables. At international level, it's Robson. When he has his greatest success at England level, it's Venables. When he has his success at Scotland, it's Walter Smith. You could probably argue that Wayne really didn't have the same level of coaching, or maybe they weren't quite as intuitive. In other words, Terry Venables had success at Barcelona, taking them to a European Cup final. Bobby Robson had managed out in Portugal for Porto. He'd managed in 
Spain, for Barcelona. He, he'd had great success at international. He had some an element of success at international level. He'd been brilliant at Ipswich. Whereby Rooney, the level of coaching isn't. But in terms of their tactical results, in terms of the names, Sven Joran Eriksson had had success out in Italy with Lazio, who had managed all across Europe. Fabio Capello had amazing success at Roma. He'd had success at AC Milan. He'd had success at Real Madrid. You know, Steve McLaren had a fantastic reputation as a coach. Hodgson had had success out in Inter. It's it's not the strongest argument. Is that you know it wasn't as if he was being you know managed by you know Bobo the clown. It, you know, they, they, you know at, he never had a Graham Taylor as a manager. Put it that way, and that's not in any way to disparage Graham Taylor. I think in certain respects he was unlucky, and he probably the wrong man for the job. But you have to say that Rooney had a better surrounding cast than Gascoigne did. If you look at the amount of people that won the European Cup that Wayne Rooney was surrounded with, you're looking at Ashley Cole, John Terry, Rio Ferdinand. You're looking at Gerard Lampard. You know, you're looking at people like Michael Owen, Paul Scholes. Yeah, even even Nicky. But all of these people had had fantastic success at internet at domestic level and to an extent at international level. I mean, his first goal scoring partner was someone who scored over forty goals for England. That's not you know, and had had you know, and had ended up playing for Real Madrid. Ended up playing for and had success at Liverpool. You know, at no point was he ever a one man band in the same way that you'd have to say uh, a Maradona does. So really, I think in the end of it is that. You'd see that Paul Gascoigne improved the England team when he was in it. <laughs> I wouldn't necessarily say the same thing with Rooney. I, I can't sit there and tell you an, an England player that was improved by playing with Wayne Rooney. I think in a certain regards, what you'd have to say is that... Is that in some ways with Wayne Rooney, his greatest skill in terms of dealing with the pressure... <laughs> Because I, I think you have to remember with when Wayne Rooney first came out was just how much fear there was. I think there was this worry that, that the pressure that being an England player, being the, 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 the chosen one, being the, the, sort of the last piece in the jigsaw for the golden generation, and that he'd somehow turn into a, another Gascoigne. And I think now that we can look back on it, it was entirely... It's almost an altruistic thing in terms of the, the footballing culture in this country. That it was almost as if they felt a bit guilty that Gaza had turned into, you know, what Gaza is now in terms of, you know, the drinking culture. In other words, I think the one of the things that always gets me is, is that what it must have been like to be Paul Gascoigne is that every single time you walk into a pub there would have been someone going, You were my hero, I remember you Italian I remember you playing for Spurs, I remember you playing for Rangers. Can I get you a pint? And the fact that the press and the and the public had loved Gaza's antics, but obviously, you know the flip side of that was the mental instability and the problems that he's had as a result, and you know what he, the tragedy that has been his life outside of football once his career has ended. With Rooney, none of that's really happened because, in a way, he's so such an ordinary person. In other words, he really is just like you and me. He does his job when he's you know off work. So in other words, the off season, he goes to he goes to a nice warm sunny place with his mates and his family, and drinks a load of beer, eats what he wants, smokes a cigarette, and comes back you know after holiday a little bit overweight, which is just 
in this day and age, just a complete no-no. I mean, I think this is the... I remember reading an excerpt of a book after... And it's talking about the pre-season after World Cup 2006, whereby Rooney had been sent off treading on Ricardo Carvalho's nutsack. And you know, the, the element that said, oh, well, Cristiano Ronaldo had helped get him sent off by, you know, give, you know essentially influencing the ref and then giving the wink to the touchline. And that... As a result, you know, Wayne Rooney would bundle into, you know, pre-season and have a massive go at him. And actually what it is, is no, Wayne Rooney's completely fine with it and they carry on. But it's the thing is that Ronaldo comes in perfectly, you know, in proportion, ready to get on with the season. Wayne Rooney comes in with a bit of a beer belly. And I think that what's what comes back to the previous thing, were expectations unfair, is that, you know, in other words, has he and has he made the most out of himself? And the problem is you can't say yes because he didn't keep himself in that kind of shape. There is an element of tragedy into it and uniqueness. In other words, for someone who has the talent that Wayne Rooney has, I've never known an athlete who's achieved that much at the top level who's got the more average body. In other words, he's not the tallest, he's not necessarily the fastest, he doesn't have you know, the most fantastic stamina. In other words, if you basically syringed out his natural talented gift, he'd probably be somewhere close to a third division player. You can imagine him playing for Tranmere Rovers. You know, because when he's you know, out of form, you can tell instantaneously the touch goes. And what that really what that leads is the dichotomy of his career. So basically, either the expectations were too high and we should celebrate his numerous achievements, but limit Rooney below Lineker, Moore, Banks, Greaves, Gascoigne, Charlton, on England's Mount Rushmore. Or you're saying, well, Rooney did meet all the expectations, and he was undone by misfortune, so the injury during the quarterfinal of Euro 2004, poor management, and the general underachievement of the supporting cast, so the golden generation. So really, this is what it comes down to. My counter-argument would be, as I've said, he didn't make players better during his England career. I think the classic example is uh, Ali at the last Euros was ended up playing on the left side of a midfield three so that Rooney could play his midfield role, which was insane because really Deli Ali had had one season. You know, basically, no, really, what effectively amounted to three quarters of a Premier League season in essentially one position. He started out a little bit deeper as he improved and showed his ability going forward he got pushed further and further forward but it was a central player and as a result it was insane to think that actually in his first tournament having only had a handful of caps actually he was moved to an unfamiliar position just to, to accommodate him so naturally Ali's tournament was nowhere near as successful as I think it could have been but also then it ended up putting a huge amount of pressure on Wayne Rooney to perform and to make up for that to basically Force, in other words, it, it, for it to be a meritocratic decision. To say, okay, we know Delhi can have all of this success and has all of this great potential. However, Wayne's playing so well, if we want to put Ali into the team, we have to shoehorn him there. And that's not how it turned out. And I think if you, I think the the other example is the um, World Cup in Brazil, where you know Raheem Sterling against the Italian has a fantastic game. He's one of our best players. Terrorized the a very good Italian defense from a central position, whereby Rooney out on the left, I mean, he had this fantastic game in terms of effort. He sprints everywhere. He covered, he covered more ground than anybody else on the pitch from this left-wing view. 
However, the problem is is that defensively he makes an error which leads to an Italian goal and nothing really comes out from the left. I mean, this is the, the thing that you have to remember with Rooney is that there wasn't really a plan B. All he could do would be essentially rely on the talent to, to, to accrue something, for something to happen from that talent and to try really hard. And, the, and this is why so much of his career has been, I think, blighted or in some, some of his legacy and his public perception has been blighted by that because really if the talent wasn't working or if he wasn't able to if he wasn't able to apply that talent into scoring and if the effort wasn't working there was nowhere else for him to go which is where you get the anger the pressure from which is where you end up i mean the a great example of this would be when he got sent off against Montenegro at the time, England were winning 2-0. They'd had a really good start. It's a difficult away place, but the Montenegrin side is not the most gifted team going. And all they had to do is see out the game. But he's had a poor game. And he just lashes out after about, oh, I think it was 20, 25 minutes, and gets himself sent off. And it's a straight red. And it's one of our last qualifying games. Which means that he's supposed to then miss the next two games of the Euros. And it's insane. They were winning. There was no need for him to do that. But because he's... Because it wasn't working for him, and he can he can never integrate himself into a team. In other words, he can sit there and say, "Okay, I'm not playing very well." However, Carrick is playing well, or you know, or Milner's playing well. So what I'll do is I will just basically keep hold of the ball and just keep feeding Milner or whoever was playing well at that time. It doesn't really work in that way. In other words. One thing that you could say about Wayne Rooney is it was almost as if it, he didn't really care who he was playing alongside. In other words, it didn't matter whether it was Heskey, whether it was Owen, what the formation was. He would go out there and just do his game. And that the other ten players were really there essentially to make up the numbers. Because he never had a partnership with anyone. I can't... You know, in other words, if Michael Owen had you know got goals when they were playing up, they weren't because Wayne Rooney was there. He, he's a very individualistic talent, which is, I think, where a lot of England managers really struggle because they, couldn't, they didn't, couldn't drop him because he has so much talent, because the numbers in qualification were so good and the potential for him to recreate Euro 2004 was so strong. But the problem was, is because he doesn't work well with anyone, it became very hard to have a formation because it's not like the 1980s whereby you could just stick him in the hole and have a, a bunch of workaday players covering the ground for him and just allow him to do his genius and you'd still have a couple of wingers so that if you had a big number nine they could feed off of that modern football's moved on and you can't really afford to have that sort of player or if you do have that player that player has to be a Pirlo and the thing with Pirlo is is he's not going to do a long busting run he's not even really going to guarantee that he's going to keep the back four safe what he will do though is with his passes is to build a platform on which the attacking players can use that to then have success. In other words, he may have one or two he only has two or three he only has two or three tools, but those two or three tools when used utilized in the correct formation with the correct players can make him fantastic. You know, so if I'm mentioning Sterling Sterling and Ali being moved out of position to accommodate Rooney and in either one of those situations, so in other words when they move Sterling out onto the left and Rooney into the centre in the next game it didn't really work. And that 
a lot of the goals that Wayne Rooney scored at international tournaments after Euro 2004, there was they were tap-ins, they were headers, they were not particularly great goals. They're not goals that you would show on an endless loop in the same way that you know Gascoigne's goal against Scotland or the you know the near miss against you know, in extra time against Germany, which would have been the golden goal, which would have taken you know, England through to the final. And if you then look on the flip side of it, is that you know, Skulls in 2004, Lampard and Gerrard, as their careers progressed, he never seemed to be able to, to work with the more experienced players. So if he didn't get the best out of the younger players, that's fair enough. Some of the greats don't really work particularly well with young players because they're at a certain level and actually what they need is experienced players who know how to work through them. But then Skulls, Lampard and Gerrard never seemed to you know, perform particularly that much better. And if you then say, well... If he did make, meet all of his expectations, then was the move to midfield it for the Euro successful? Well, it ends up in the Iceland game. And it, it didn't help the younger players, it didn't help the older players, it didn't help the team. You know, essentially, what, I'm, what my end point with Wayne Rooney is, is that he never found a system or a position. And how you can have a career for that long and to have never found a... A formation. In other words, Maradona finds his. Ronaldo. I mean, if you take you know original Ronaldo, he has this fantastic genius ability. You know, power, pace, finesse, all of it, and yet he loses it because of the knee injury. He's never the same player again. But then he basically is able through the grueling rehabilitations to return. And to be successful, he's not quite the same player as he is in 98, in 2002 or 2006. But at the highest level, he's managed to get himself into the Brazil team and has managed to be able to have enough success to win a World Cup. The other example is Cristiano Ronaldo. He originally starts out as a pacey, tricky winger, very, very slim. And eventually, you know, his start of his Man United career is, is that he's always desperate to show everyone how talented he is. So in other words, he's not just beating the first man, he's beating the first man two or three times over. And it's basically a way, it's almost a form of neediness. It's a desire you know, to, to be impressed and to be loved. And really what happens is, is that they, you know, Carlos Cuera, as the assistant manager, goes up to him and says, look, you're just not scoring goals. You're not taking chances. You are not producing the results that will get you into the Manchester United team and to become a great player. And you don't have the physicality to do so. So over an off-season, he basically weaponizes his body. So when he comes back, he's, he doesn't have to do um, 3,000 tricks or dive or anything else like that because actually really what he's doing is he's performing. So he's getting into the right positions, he's taking his chances, and he is absolutely maximising his talent. And as a result of maximising that talent, he can't stay on the wing. He needs to be central because that's where you get you know, better positions, more chances of scoring. And then he becomes this all-round offensive icon, which then means when he goes to Real Madrid, he's not just overawed. He doesn't just become a, a wide player that's fitting in with all the other superstars. He becomes the Omega and Alpha superstar, which is not what Wayne Rooney ever does. In other words, okay, you could say at Manchester United he was inhibited because he was always playing with superstars and he had to almost fit into that ethos and just to get results. Okay, but then he had all the opportunities at international level. He was given different managers, different schemes, and none of them ever seemed to suit him for any period of time. 
which as a result means that you can't ever say that he met all the expectations because in the end we don't know how far he could have pushed his talent, which comes back to the fitness issues. So in other words, you know, a few years ago, he had to miss the first month of the season to go to you know, the fitness training centre in Nike's Oregon complex out in Oregon. And it was basically a fat camp. And so the issue is, is that we can't say definitively that he pushed himself to the absolute limits, which is what we know about Ronaldo. The point is, is that Ronaldo has an insane ego. And as a, but in the end, that effectively works out to good ego because in the end, he changed his body. He pushed the level of what a striker or what an attacking player could do. He pushed the level of what Real Madrid could do. In other words, if you started at the, at the start of his Real Madrid career, to be the greatest goalscorer in Real Madrid history was a massive mountain. That you know, most, He was already in his mid-twenties. He'd lost seven or eight years which most people would need. In other words, the person that was likely to break that record was someone who started at, broke into the first team at 18, had a fantastic career, and ended his career at Real Madrid. It wasn't supposed to be someone that actually got there halfway through their career and just obliterated what goal-scoring records and the potential. And, as a, and even when you know, Ronaldo has started to decline... He's changed position, so he's become more central, more of a traditional striker. He's changed his movements, and he's been able to work with the players he has. In other words, you can understand Ronaldo scoring a hatful of goals at Real Madrid, the surrounding cast, and how much better Real Madrid are than two-thirds of the Spanish league. Of course they're going to get lots of hat-tricks. But the same time is, is that he takes a Portugal team, and this is when he's not at his physical peak, but he's able to, you know work as the centre point and work out and then Portugal win in the Euros even if they're not the best team in the tournament even if they didn't have the best defence even if they didn't play particularly brilliantly well his ability to be the standard bearer for that team and to help them win whereby you don't ever have that moment with Wayne Rooney his best tournament is Euro 2004 and really if you want to get down to the brass taxes of it the reason why Euro 2004 is his best tournament is it's Wayne Rooney's just enough education to perform. In other words, it's a Stereophonics album, and Wayne Rooney loves that album, and he's had it tattooed somewhere on his body, as far as I'm aware. And what that really means is, is that what Wayne Rooney didn't have was, and I'm not saying this from a, I'm not saying this from a, a sort of class standpoint or sort of intellectual snobbery, but he never had that deep interest in how to. He never had the interest to fully push his talent to the absolute end level, which is what you can say with Messi and Ronaldo. In, in a way, it's almost a mentality thing. In other words, Ronaldo was so egotistical and his desire to be the greatest was so strong that it ended up leading him to push himself well beyond what any normal person would do. Whereby the difference is, is that if you look at Wayne Rooney's problems, is that they're the problems of an ordinary person. So in other words, you know, when something goes, when something goes wrong. So in other words, at the end of his Man United career, when he's out of the team, you know, he goes to a casino and loses an obscene amount of money, you know, betting on I think it was the roulette table or something like that. He goes out on binge drinks. And in the end, he, he's just an ordinary person. He's extraordinary. He is just basically an ordinary person like you or me, with you and me's problems, who was just basically 
dipped in the genius honey of football. You know, like a latter-day Achilles, really. And as a result, he's ended up breaking these records, but in a way that isn't particularly enjoyable. And his narrative isn't particularly great. In other words, Euro 2004, he just gets an injury. In other words, it's not... And so as a result, nothing changes. So in other words, when he's... Euro 2004, there's no expectations. We know he's a kid. And that we've just put him out there because he has this gift. And at the time, his body is at his peak. At the time, we assume that his body is 18, 19, and that eventually he would mature and... You know, at the later tournaments. This is the whole thing with Wayne Rooney, is that when he when he went off injured in the Euro 2004, it was gutting, but we saw the bright, sunny uplands of when his body matured, when he you know gets to his physical peak in his late 20s, and when he gets to his intellectual sporting peak. That could then be 2006, 2008, 2010, 2012, 14, possibly 16. You can see six tournaments worth of genius. What we didn't realise was that the peak was that he just wanted to go out and play football. And as a, and when he did that, he would try his absolute best. And when it would get to the end, he would then, at the end of the season, he would go out with his family and his mates. And he would come back and pre-season would be used to get fit. And as a result, when you get to 2000, year, well, World Cup 2006, it's not as fresh. The thing is, teams have had years, two years worth of footage and scouting reports and there's actual expectation on him and there's expectation on the team to do better because they are one of the presumptive favourites they have the potential with all of the ability they have and at the age group that they were to go to that next level but it doesn't happen whereby in 2004 he goes out with a completely fresh mindset he can just go out there use the talent he's got the pace and the strength and he has a really great tournament and he and that's the opportunity. But once he had to start thinking about it, it then becomes that much more difficult and the pressure starts to rise. And then you get the Ricardo Carvalho nut stamp. It's because once you made him think about it and you put that kind of pressure on him, that's not what he could do. In other words, to, to maintain his sanity, he just had to be an average, average, ordinary bloke. Whereby if he'd been as egotistical as Ronaldo, that would have forced him to say, okay, how can I get Gerard into the game? How can I get how can I use Lampard, Gerard? How can I then how can we then create some form of trident that will then obliterate the Oppo? And that's not what happens. In other words, all he wants to do is just go out there and play. He loves football. He you know, the classic example is when he's a kid and he's playing at an European tournament, um, I think it's like under seventeens. He asks to read a poem to everyone. So you're talking about his teammates and their families. And he's, you know, 15, 16, well, 14, 15, 16. And he does it. Anybody else, you imagine if, if you made me do that at that age, I wouldn't have wanted to read a poem in front of anyone, let alone friends, family and you know, colleagues and peers. But the point is that it's not that he, care, he, you know, he cares so much, but the point is he hasn't done his homework. He hasn't worked out how to beat the oppo. He's just basically relying on his talent. And the problem with that is, is that in the end, once you took away that fleeting moment of Euro 2004 where there was no pressure on him and all he had to do was just rely on the talent, 
is that, that that that's fleeting. When you're 18 and you're fearless and there's no pressure on you, that doesn't last forever. What happens is is that as you grow, your your body grows, your mind grows, and then you learn new skills. He never seems to have learned that, and that's unfortunate. And the problem is is that why he's not on the world, why he's not up there with Cristiano Ronaldo and Messi on the world, you know, football Mount Rushmore, it's probably because he never had the body of a top level athlete. That was a limit. But then the problem was is that he exacerbated it. That's why his top level career has died off before he was 30, because he didn't look after his body. He put his body under so much strain in terms of having to get fit every single preseason and all of the drinking, the smoking, the late nights and everything else like that has made it exponentially worse. And so what's happened is when he's reached 27, 28, when it was supposed to be his peak, his body was starting to fail on him. And the problem was is that while he has all the skills to play midfield, he can ping a, a ball, he can tackle, he can make driving runs from midfield, he can, he's got a great shot outside the box. What he's never been able to do in midfield is to put them all together for a 90-minute game. It's just flashes. It's flashes of talent. But it's not got the underlying fitness to it. It's, he's not sat there and said, OK, maybe I could turn myself into a Pirlo. Pirlo doesn't do any running. But he was able to play into his mid-30s because he had the exact position and he knew that if he, he would have to set the tempo. What Rain Rooney does is make a great 50-yard Hollywood pass to the, the, full, the overlapping fullback, but it doesn't go anywhere. It's just a great 50-yard ball because he has a great 50-yard ball in his locker. It's not a well-thought-out plan A. In other words, oh, I'm going to get the keep putting the ball over to the overlapping left-back you know, so that that then leaves the back door open for the right-winger to, you know, meet a deep cross because the right wing is six foot two and the left back is five foot seven. It's not that. It's just individual flashes of genius. They're never actually put into any kind of structure. So as a result, the the greatest lament you can have for Wayne Rooney's career is that he's scored these fantastic goals. He's had this you know, he's won everything domestically. He's broken the record for international goals. And yet there's no there's nothing else to it. There's no great standout moment at an international outside of Euro 2004. And even then, it's a couple of group games. He gets injured within the first 10-15 minutes of the quarter-final. And those two games were against Croatia. It's against Croatia and it's against Switzerland. Neither of those two teams are fantastic. You know, In the first game, they lose against France. It's a very limited you know, height. In other words, if you're saying, OK, he scored a couple of great goals against Croatia and Switzerland, two teams that didn't get out of the group stages, that's not a tremendous peak. And so you're left at the end of the reasons why he's, you, you'd say he hasn't made the most of his talent. It is a poor record at major tournaments. And he had lots of opportunities. If you look at Gascoigne, he had two goes at it. You know, Wayne Rooney's had four or five goes at it. You know, he didn't, wasn't able to adapt to midfield, even though he had all the talent. And comparing to someone like Kevin Peterson, Kevin Peterson, you know, off the field, in terms, there's the scandal of texting to the South African opposition during a tournament. You know, it's getting the coach fired. It's, you know, there's a whole load of baggage that comes with Kevin Peterson. But the part, the, the reason why you get that much baggage is because he has this fantastic talent and that he plums the depths of it in other words he pushes himself not just to score a century against Australia but to score a definitive century to score out in India when it's 
and not just to score a century. Lots of people can gut out a century in India if you put away two or three of your shots, you milk the spinners, you're very reliable in defence. Sort of like an Alistair Cook sort of century. He doesn't just score a century, he scores a huge century by attacking, you know, on an you know, a difficult Indian pitch. And Lee and as a result, it during his career, England won their first, you know, major ICC tournament. They won a T twenty tournament away in the West Indies against Australia in the final. They win the Ashes in Australia. They get to world number one at the test rankings. It's, you know, they win it out in India. All of these things, and he's always a key part of it. And you compare that to Rooney, in and then Rooney's had probably is a slightly higher ranked player in terms of football, in terms of the ability that he had. Kevin Peterson is not a Sachin Tendulkar, he's not a Brian Lara, he, he's not at that level, he's not on the world Mount Rushmore. As a test batsman, you know, he's had a great career for England, he's one of England's best, but he's on England's Mount Rushmore for modern day test matches, because with him you could take on the world's best, and, and he could play these world class innings, and that he essentially pushed himself to that level. In other words, on his England debut, he hit Glenn McGrath for a huge six straight over the back of his head in a genera- where there'd been a generation of England batsmen who would have never dreamed of doing that. But this is where Rain Rooney's lack of imagination comes to the fore. In other words, you, you could argue that why is he not on England's Mount Rushmore? It's because there is no legacy. In other words, there was no players or teams that he made that much better. He would just turn up, do his performances and score his goals and then go home again. In other words, he might as well played for England in 1904 as opposed to 2004. Because really, once you get to the heart of Wayne Rooney's England career, it comes down to a couple of paragraphs. It's He was a, a fantastic player who was a little bit overweight and had a bit of a temper but on his day could score these fabulous goals and could do anything on a football pitch. And that's what... And driving from the field. That might as well be 1904 for all of the, the actual relevance it is. That's our understanding of Wayne Rooney. In other words, whereby... You, you could say that with... Let's say Charlton. You say, I'll go brilliant goal scoring pl- midfield player. That kind of leads on to a, a Keegan. Which sort of leads on to, you know... A Gerrard, a Lampard. There's some kind of legacy. In other words, with Bobby Moore, so you go, okay, Bobby Moore, and then you end up with you know, even a later Tony Adams. You end up with Rio. You end up with Ledley King, John Terry, Jamie Carragher. Those sort of players, people that were ball-playing centre def- centre backs, who had all you know, who took on the skills and almost the mantle of Bobby Moore. You're not really going to get that with Wayne Rooney. I don't think anyone's going to sit there and. You wouldn't train a kid to play like Wayne Rooney. Because in the end, it's entirely individualistic. It's got no relation to tactics. You know, in the end, Wayne Rooney could have been our version of Cruyff or our Maradona. He could have basically set what English football means tactically, formation-wise. The style of play, the way how, how successful England could have been. Because all of the bits and pieces were there. In effect... A player of that talent shouldn't be relying on the manager to come up with the, with the plan. Really what he should be doing, he should have been the forefront of it. He should have made it his team. But he, he never did that. 
I'm going to end this podcast really asking you, asking you, the listener, a couple of questions. Do you think that Wayne Rooney played the same 100-plus caps for England with ever-decreasing returns after Euro 2004? You know, it's the famous quote that Shane Warne said about England spinner Monty Panesar. It's not that he was a bad player, it's just that he played the same test 50 times and that he just never got better. In other words, if the, the pitch was you know, suitable for his talent, he would take wickets. If it wasn't, he didn't do well. There was no sense of maturation. And I think that he, had a, he was a generational talent, which is why he was making his England debut at 17-18, which is why he has these records, because he had that talent. What he lacked was the, I suppose, the ego or the intellectual desire to push himself, the athlete's desire to push himself. In the end, he's just an extraordinary bloke with an extraordinary talent. And I think in the end, that's why there's a disappointment. It's why um, part of me is angry at him, almost, in a way, that he didn't. That, you know, it would have been fine had he just been a great player, like a Gerrard, a Lampard. You can almost, in a way, forgive. You know, if he had, if he was like a Matt Letizia, now Letizia never quite maybe pushed his talent to the absolute level, but he he wasn't a generational talent. He was just a fantastic player, and what he was a victim was was that England managers were never able to use him. The point is, is that Wayne, and maybe that's an age thing. In other words, maybe if Matt Letizia come ten years later. Or maybe 10 years earlier. He could have been that sort of player. He could have been a Maradona-like player in the 80s for an England team. Or if he'd been 10 years later, you know, they would have been able to create a Messi-type role for him. So in other words, in some ways, Matt Lutis is slightly the wrong generation. And his talent wasn't that overwhelming to, to necessitate England building their team around him in the 90s. Because they had Shearers and all the rest of it. Whereby with Rooney, his talent was so singular and so much above. He really was a generational player. And as a result, you have to compare him to the people who end up on the world Mount Rushmore, the European one, and, and England and Manchester United. And it is telling that you really you wouldn't put him on there. His legacy and his narrative isn't particularly strong enough. So to end, the, the last key question I'm going to ask you, the viewer, is well, why don't England and Man United fans miss Wayne Rooney? Because you know, he's made his last, he's never going to play for Man United again. He's almost certainly never going to play for England again. And yet there wasn't, we're not missing him in the same way that United fans miss Cantona, in the same way that England fans, way that England fans missed Kevin Peterson. I think maybe in, in sort of four or five years' time, once his career's fully ended, I think we'll be able to look back on Wayne Rooney with a lot more fondness. I think we'll be able to put away our disappointment in him and in what he could have been and just enjoy what he was. But there's always going to be that that sense that he he's more of a YouTube footballer than he is a documentary footballer by what I mean is is that if you to watch 10 minutes of highlights of him on YouTube it's fantastic he had all of this skill but you wouldn't watch a documentary about his career because there's not that much to it 
in the end, he was just a, an ordinary bloke, a, a likeable bloke that turned up, tried, and not much else. You know, he, he wasn't the, the, the person that was going to define English football for a generation or two generations, like a Cruyff, like a Beckenbauer, like a Maradona. Even to an extent, a, a original Ronaldo. His is a... His is a triumph in the sense that he dealt with that pressure and that he stayed true to himself and that he did achieve all that he did. But it's also a lament in that what he could have achieved. Thank you.